0: Delmarva Today with Don Rush.
1: How does the hijab worn by Muslim women fit into what's considered America's liberal democracy? Welcome to Delmarva Today. This is Don Rush. Since the attacks on 9-11, American society has looked upon such clothing as something that is associated with either terrorism or the oppression of women. And the issue has become more significant with recent Supreme Court rulings as well as the rise of Christian nationalism. Alguni Sheff has written a new book entitled Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism, and the Hijab, which explores how the United States treats such religious and cultural expressions. She is an associate professor of women's gender and sexual studies at Emory University, and we have her on the phone this morning. Welcome to the program.
0: Hi, thank you. Great to be here.
1: So uh, I want to start with something, um, a quote that I ran across, that you said that the disapproval faced by Muslim women stems in part from the sense that liberal democracies are superior to illiberal democracies, and it does not necessarily apply to religious customs. What do do you mean by that?
0: Um, I think that there is a sense that, you know, liberalism is superior to all other kind of forms of society in the world, and that liberalism isn't just about a set of principles and laws and procedures, but it's also a kind of cultural outlook. And so I think we tend to associate people who look a certain way as either being suitable or acceptable under liberalism and people who violate our standards of, um, of what we think, is, you know, look like free men and women that they end up, uh, kind of being treated hostily by us because we tend to think that we know better.
1: Do you think that this is particularly, um, developed since say nine 11 or even since for instance, um, uh, uh, 1979 with the Iranian um, Revolution?
0: Oh, yeah. No, I think it goes back much, you know, mm-hmm. even further. I think 9-11 really renewed our attention to it, but I think there has always been this kind of, you know, just assumption that liberalism is superior. And the fact is, you know, that I think it it also... Um, it, these kinds of this kind of superiority operated under British colonialism and French colonialism as well. So I think those attitudes have just migrated down through the centuries. So when the Brits went off to India and colonized it, there was a sense that they needed to really teach um, Indians how to, you know, they, they needed to educate them. They needed to show them what it meant to be modern, what it meant to be civilized beings, and. I think that ha- has happened all over the world. Um, and so I think that's really more the origins of these kinds of attitudes, and I think 9-11 was just a refresher course in it to say, see, we know better. Whereas, you know, we forget that it was a group of 11 folks, and, yeah, there are some pretty you know extremist cells out there, but they don't represent all Muslims. They're all, you know, non-Western folks. Because one of the
1: things that strikes me is that um – In terms of democracy, which we associate with liberalism, but we also can have liberal democracies. Well, one of the things that strikes me about the history of this country is that we've had this kind of religious discrimination in the past. I mean, against Catholics, for instance, Al Smith defeated in 1928. Only John Kennedy became elected president of the United States as a Catholic in 1960. We've had anti-Semitism, restricted hotels. Um, it seems to me that this is just uh, another piece of the puzzle, as it were, in terms of the United States trying to move forward in some fashion to, um, to a much more liberal idea than, for instance, it had in the past. That is, that this is not a static situation. What about that? I mean, aren't we just simply in another um, fight, as it were, over, over trying to make ourselves more tolerant?
0: Yeah, no, I think that um, we are in a bind, and I think that we do tend to kind of, you know, direct this kind of hostility and this kind of discrimination towards all kinds of groups, right? So, I mean, we know that there was a long history of anti-Semitism. You know, the marches by the Nazis and Skokie kind of remind us of that, right? But even more recently, all kinds of attacks on synagogues as well as mosques. So, yes, I mean, it's just a new group. (laughs) New day, new group.
1: (laughs) I mean, uh, do you think that we're making progress in that fashion or, I mean, where, where do you think we are in terms of trying to achieve that ideal, that, that what the kinds of things we've become say accustomed to with other groups that at one time were, were outsiders?
0: I mean, I think the thing about ideals that that is, that they're always worth striving for, but I'm not sure that i buy that we have a kind of, that we're moving in, in some kind of progressive direction. I mean, I think, You know, these things ebb and flow, but I don't think that means we should stop trying. Right. So, you know, I mean, I think we're just at a different moment, but we just got to keep aspiring anyway, right? That just kind of um, has us looking towards the future in the hopes that we can do something more.
1: Well, one of the other things that um, you make reference to is Afghanistan. That uh, After the invasion, there were many Afghan women who did come out from behind the, the burqa, for example, that was required. Uh, clothing. Um, And you quote, I believe, I think there's a quote in your book about an American liberal feminist reason to invade Afghanistan that is to save or liberate their women. Um, I suspect that really came after the other political geopolitical, um, say, issues that certainly the the Bush administration faced. But uh, it, it is true, though, that once the Taliban were gone from certain areas that women did then began to shed some of that uh, some of that clothing and even some of that um, custom that they had in terms of their role in society.
0: There is no doubt that um, Afghan women, and we're really seeing this right. The New York Times has been having a whole bunch of articles about this over the last week since it's been you know we're marking a year since the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan completely. Um, And did it a little unceremoniously, I might add, but, you know, so there's no doubt that there is a lot of extreme oppression that Afghan women face in their home countries. I think the concern that I and a lot of other um, feminists had about this was that this was being used as an excuse to invade Afghanistan. And you know that it was a crutch in that way. It's like, well, you know, that there were, that there, I'm not sure that there was really a fantastic reason to invade Afghanistan, but this seemed to be a really good excuse. And as we know, with all countries, right, once you know, you have a a power invaded and then pull out, there's going to be a lot of upheaval. And so we're kind of back to that moment right now, right? Where you've got, there was a huge power vacuum and the Taliban pretty much moved in and they filled it back up. So, but i also think that we have you know our own version of religious fundamentalism in every single society including our own and we're seeing a bit of that uh these days if i dare say often from some of our highest legal institutions in the land
1: well the other thing that struck me is that there we seem to be seeing a rise or resurgence of what might be called christian (laughs) christian nationalism and I was kind of curious as to what you think that might mean for Muslim women. I mean, we've obviously emphasized uh, various minority groups, um, LGBTQ community, for example. Uh, but what do you think that means in terms of uh, Muslim women and religious tolerance? I mean, and, and is it real? I mean, is it something that could take hold, do you think? What, do
0: you, what What's the question about? Christian mean, nationalism?
1: Christian nationalism. Um, in the U.S.? Yes, in the U.S., yeah. I
0: well, yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure we ever got rid of nationalism. <laughs> well, <laughs> I I'm, I'm, think it's something that's kind of accompanied us the entire time. And I think, I um, don't know if yeah. it's really. Yeah, I, was, I
1: was just thinking ahead. of Christian nationalism in particular. I mean, that seems to be yeah. the. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, I think Christian nationalism, it adds and flows. And yeah, it's here. Um, but I, I'm not sure it ever really goes away. I think it just kind of. You know it manages to go undercover for a while until it thinks it has a lot of support so I'm, I'm actually kind of curious I and mean, then I think with Christian nationalism we might have a certain kind of direct response to Muslims I mean certainly we're seeing a lot of terrible things happening right now being committed by sole Muslim men right so we saw the the murder of four Muslims in New Mexico in Albuquerque last week um, Saul, not Saul, but it turns out there was a Muslim man who who killed all of them, and now we see somebody who attacked Salman Rushdie up in uh, upstate New York. So, unfortunately, I think those events don't really help, <laughs> don't help kind of challenge the rise of Christian nationalism and the sense that somehow Christianity is superior to all other faiths. So, yeah, we might see a bit more of it. We'll see uh, what happens after the midterm elections.
1: So, how do you see all of this reflected in the legal system, which is you take a a great deal of um, interest in in your book um and and uh, how does that reflect, do you think, in terms of what we see the, for instance, the u s Supreme Court seems to be giving a wider berth to, say, uh, religious freedom than it say perhaps may have done in the past?
0: Yeah, this is fascinating. What a great question. Um, you know so the so I was really interested not in the kind of open Uh, overt spectacles of violence, um, you know, because there's plenty of that and that actually gets a fair amount of reporting in the news, Um, you know, so where Muslim men and women tend to be attacked or harassed or challenged on the streets, but I was interested more in how discrimination works in kind of subtle um, institutional ways, and so I ended up looking at a lot of court cases over the last 10, 15, 20 years since 9-11. The most famous one went up to the Supreme Court in 2016, and it was one called EEOC versus Abercrombie and Fitch. And the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is um, kind of an organization that works on behalf of the United States to kind of negotiate or push back against cases of discrimination, religious, racial, sexual, um, sued Abercrombie and Fitch, which is a clothing store, on behalf of a woman who was denied employment after, um, she, it turns out that she wore the hijab and it went all the way up to the Supreme court, 2016, the court ruled in support of her and against Abercrombie and Fitch and said, yes, in fact, they did discriminate. And this has held up as this, you know, really big moment in landmark moment in terms of anti-discrimination. But the thing is, there are hundreds of cases that have been filed in the court. Um, having to do with discrimination against women in prison or in security lines or in the workplace or, um, you know, just uh, in small claims court. And a lot of those cases are, in fact, dismissed, sometimes quietly settled out of court or higher courts rule against the folks who are suing for discrimination. So I'm not sure that we have a great kind of trend line there. Um, you know and I think so I wasn't I don't remember what the second part of your question was but I mean I do think that this is kind of where we have to look in in order to think about the way that discrimination operates in much more subtle ways
1: well I was curious about um, what you see in this new Supreme Court that's been constituted that seems to give uh, a better a more wide wider birth I think to uh, religious freedom and religious rights and whether or not you see that as perhaps being ultimately to the benefit of those uh, who say, for instance, want to wear the hijab, or whether or not there will be some kind of distinction that they make in terms of religious groups?
0: Well, I'm really curious about this as well, because on the one hand, we could say that, you know, their kind of embrace of certain kinds of religious um, accommodation could work in the favor of Muslims, as it did in the 2016 uh, case involving Apocombia and Fitch. In fact, it was Anthony Scalia who declared that this was just an open-and-shut case of religious discrimination, um, and he was a pretty devout Catholic. I think, however, my suspicion is that this is going to be a kind of embrace of religious accommodation for folks who are Christian, and I suspect less so for folks who are Muslim, so I think it's going to be, as you suggested a few minutes ago, more case of um, Christian religious accommodation more than anything else, but... Maybe I'm too cynical, and maybe they will uh, extend it across the board.
1: So as we look forward to the future, what kind of changes do you think will take place? Do you think we'll have some pro- progress in terms of greater acceptance of such clothing, such religious expressions, not just the hijab, but, but simply being a Muslim? Um, or do you think that this is going to be a long fight? Do you think we're in a period of regression? What What, what do you see in the crystal ball?
0: Well... I mean, I'm not sure I'm very good at predicting uh, the future. Boy, I could make a lot of money if I were. Um, but I, what I see is a lot of hope among the next generation um, of college students and folks who are coming up in the world. But I think they're just much more open to encountering people who are different. And that there's, you know, more of a sense of curiosity and interest rather than fear and hostility. And we're also seeing many more um, overtly or, as I say, visibly Muslim women, you know, being hired. So on NPR, uh, you know, there are women who wear the hijab who have been hired and who are doing really interesting stories that have nothing to do with religion or faith or anything like that. Um, So I suspect it will be open for a while until or unless some terrible event happens, in which case I suspect Muslims will be scapegoated again. But you know, as long as that is the case, I, I have a lot of hope that there will be some openness. Uh, finally, some
1: other finally, make a distinction between the various uh, pieces of clothing. We we're, we're talking about the hijab, but there are other pieces of clothing that people might find, find more um, different, I guess, than perhaps they're encountered. Uh, describe a little a bit for me about that.
0: Well, I'm not really an expert on it. I was interested more just in the way that uh, these discrimination cases happened. But, you know, I mean, there is a a distinction between the headscarf, if you will, which is not a great term, but the veil or the hijab and the niqab, which often tends to cover the face. But I will say that, you know, over the last few years, uh, many of us have you know, for our own protection and at the insistence of the CDC and the government have been covering our noses and mouths with COVID masks. Now the reasons are different, but it is kind of ironic that it kind of resembles (laughs) that very thing that I think people are very unfamiliar and hostile to. And, you know, one of the things that's been interesting is how, when we have been forced to accommodate the COVID mask, um, you know, how easy, if you will, relatively speaking, we have been able to adjust to it. So it seems like if we can do it for that reason, then we can do it for women who wear the niqab as well. And so I think it's more a matter of political and cultural will more than anything else. So I think we have to kind of get our heads wrapped around the idea that really we have, you know, we really don't have a lot of, good reasons to object to women wearing the niqab, especially in light of the last few years. And so I think hopefully remembering that will allow us to be a little bit more open and tolerant.
1: We've been speaking with Falguni Sheth. She has written a new book entitled Unruly Women, Race, Neocolonialism, and the Hijab, which explores <laughs> how the United States treats such religious and cultural expressions. And we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us this morning.
0: Glad to be here. Thank you.
1: This has been Marva Today. I'm Don Rush. Thanks for listening.
0: Marva today with Don Rush